Hello and welcome to the final Heredity podcast of 2020 with me, Dr. James Bergen. And what a year it's been. In some ways, the title of this episode, The Best of 2020, feels like a bit of a misnomer. This year has been challenging in ways few of us could have imagined. But despite all of the chaos and hardships, this has also been a year of some really outstanding science. And in today's episode, we're going to look back at some of my favourite things from the past year of the Heredity podcast. And first up, I guess we need to mention one of the most listened to episodes of this year. Possibly because it focuses on the thing that has defined this year, COVID-19. Now back in April, near the start of the pandemic, I spoke to Michael Lynch from Arizona State University about a fascinating idea he and colleagues had about using a population genetic model, called mutational meltdown, to combat the SARS-CoV-2 virus. Now, originally devised as a conservation tool, the idea here was to use drugs to induce a cascade of mutations that would cause the viral population to collapse. These RNA viruses have very, very high mutation rates. There's already been dozens, I guess, uh, probably hundreds of genomes of these bugs already sequenced. And so this is a situation in which you're seeing evolution in action on a time scale of you know, only a few months. That's one of the reasons I think it's useful to put the whole process in a, a population genetic context. And uh, the mutational meltdown is, you know, one aspect of population genetics that I think has real uh, practical implications, even though in this case, we're talking about driving something to extinction, whereas the, the concept was originally developed as a sort of guide to minimizing the risk of extinction. Yeah, I think this is the first time in the podcast we've ever talked about trying to drive something extinct. Yeah. <laughs> um, I guess the other point is that this is a general strategy for eliminating pathogens. We happen to be talking right now for obvious reasons, COVID-19, but in principle, this same strategy could be applied to any bug as long as you had a mechanism that was explicitly targeting the replication fidelity of your bug uh, and has no side effects on the, the host cells. It's a really fascinating concept, and you can hear more about it in the episode Can Mutational Meltdown Help Us Defeat COVID-19? Of course, most of the research published in Heredity has a happier origin, or at least a more entertaining one. And one of my favourite stories of this year came from then-Oxford PhD student Ashley Saddleprice. The silver eye, it's a kind of small, kind of great tit-sized bird that originates from the Australian mainland. Uh, and this is kind of a very interesting case because unlike the other island colonizations by this species, the French Polynesian population is the product of a relatively recent human-mediated introduction by a guy called Eastham Guild. So yeah, East- Eastham Guild was somewhat of a prolific aviculturist who, in his own words, uh, he says that he liberated more than 7,000 individuals of 59 different species to the island of Tahiti. So despite being, you know, it's a completely crazy man and such introductions are a bit of an ecological disaster, if you're interested in studying very early stages of divergence, this kind of foolishness is also, well, at least for me, very useful because there are now 13 non-native terrestrial bird species on Tahiti. And these can be used to study the very early stages of divergence from a much clearer vantage point than what we've had before. And yes, you did hear Tahiti, which can only mean one thing, fieldwork. Yeah, there's definitely many worse places to spend two months of your life than French Polynesia. Uh, but... <laughs> um, <laughs> Yes, I was really lucky that with the support of a heredity fieldwork grant from the Genetics Society, I could visit five of the 11 islands uh, that have silver eye populations. But um, it's kind of interesting that uh, Sir Eastham Guild, in his writings about French Polynesia, kind of describes it as being an exotic paradise. But he also goes on to say that it's, for some reason, there is practically no bird life. And that was kind of his justification for introducing non-native species to Tahiti. 
And having visited French Polynesia, I could say, of course, there is an abundance of bird life in French Polynesia. But there was no sometimes where I found myself maybe agreeing with Guild a little bit, <laughs> especially when I was on the island of um, Huahini. Anybody I spoke to, I'd show them pictures of silver eyes and they'd be like, oh, no, we've never seen these at all. So trying to get local knowledge about a bird that nobody knows exists was a yeah, big part of spending two months hopping around paradise. It's always great to hear about the project's heredity fieldwork grant support. And you can hear more about this project in the episode Drift and Selection in Paradise. Now, another reason why I really like talking to Ash is that we got to hear from him about the importance of diversity in science. Yeah, over the last uh, months, over LGBTQ plus history month, I've had a, a lot of opportunity, I think, to reflect on this question. Uh, and there was one talk I went to during that month that was really interesting. And there was a kind of a quote which was along the lines of being LGBTQ plus in STEM has the same challenges as anyone does in STEM, but with the added layer of the burdens and challenges of being LGBTQ plus on top of that. So for me, you know, personally, a big challenge is that you know, at school, I spent a lot of effort trying not to stand out and not trying to be noticed. But as a scientist, you, know, you have to make yourself stand out. You have to get people interested in your research. You have to go and get on a stage and talk about your work, which for me can be at times quite anxiety inducing. So I guess I think it's important to recognise LGBTQ plus communities in STEM because it then gives people like me the confidence to talk about our work. And a big part of achieving that is really creating a culture that celebrates its diversity. Another manuscript that had fieldwork at its core was featured in the episode In Search of Sponges. Here, Sarah Griffiths from Manchester Metropolitan University and Donald Beringer from the University of Florida discussed their work on Caribbean sponges. The scope of their work, the complexities they found, and the potential conservation implications of this study were truly incredible. But what I really loved in this episode was just the sheer appreciation these two had for an often overlooked group of organisms. So I think sponges are often a bit misunderstood and they, you know, fly under the radar a little bit. But they're a really interesting group. They are aquatic invertebrates that are found mainly in marine ecosystems. They don't have organs or a circulatory system or a digestive system. And they make their living from filter feeding mostly. So as they suck water in through their pores, they take out what they need from it and they really alter the characteristics of the water column. But this species in in particular caught our attention because of its current situation in Florida. So I'll hand over to Don to talk a little bit about the sponge there. Sure, yeah. The base sponges are particularly abundant throughout the Caribbean, but in the Florida Keys, they're very abundant. But part of the problem is changes in water quality over the past several decades have resulted in massive blooms of cyanobacteria. Well, so long story short, what happens when you have these blooms, you have massive areas of sponges that are killed off. And so that's really kind of what got us, you know, sort of keyed in on this particular species and looking into potentially restoring those populations. Of course, not only do researchers work in remote places, some live there too. Now, I have an inordinate fondness for amphibians. And Diana Rojas joined us from the city of Tabachinga in the Brazilian Amazon to talk to us about some fantastic frogs and where to find them. She was joined by Adam Stowe from Macquarie University in Australia. We had fieldwork that was amazing. Amazon is really amazing. So one of the interesting things that we used to decide the points that we were to visit was where the blue color was found. Uh, we traveled to the Paris state in Brazil. That is the uh, principal distribution of Galactonotus, maybe. Well, we collect uh, a standard number of frogs at each locality of fresh color. 
we try to cover almost the geographic distribution known for Galactonotus. Um, it was something like two years during the rainy season to collect our samples, but we also use another samples that were previously collected that were available in in collections. The, the fieldwork was amazing. It's a very good experience. I love fieldwork, but you you have to. It, it's not easy. It's not easy at all. But you enjoy that. I might add a bit in there as well. I was very fortunate to be introduced to this frog, Adelphobardi's Galactonotus, by Gianna and one of Gianna's PhD supervisors, Albertina Lima. And they're an absolutely spectacular frog. They're quite large for a, a poison frog, and they have these spectacular colours on their dorsal surface. And one of the striking things about this species is that the bright colours, exactly as Gianna mentioned, are unique to a, a location. So if you look at a particular population at a particular spot, they all have the same dorsal coloration. But you can get populations that are in very close proximity to each other with different colors. Of course, heredity papers don't just focus on single organisms. Every paper has a broad message in it, and some specifically probe and challenge our understanding of specific genetic and evolutionary concepts. One really interesting paper we had from Surathe and Yashrat Chavan, both from Ishapuni in India, looked at the impact of starting population size on an organism's ability to specialize on a food source. In this case, they looked at the bacterium E. coli. Here's Yashrat. We looked at their fitness or fitness changes, uh, and compared them to the ancestral fitness values, and uh, figured out if they enhanced their fitness in the selection conditions, did they lose fitness in the alternative conditions? Okay, so I guess the big question is, what did you actually find out to do with the initial population size's ability for E. coli to specialize? So as expected, we found that larger populations adapted more to their selection conditions. But surprisingly, we also found that larger populations also maladapted more to the alternative conditions, regardless of the identity of this alternative uh, condition. So for example, populations which were selected in galactose, large populations are not only adapted more to galactose, they also maladapted more to thymidine. So they lost more fitness, relatively more fitness in thymidine mm. and vice versa. Hear more in the episode Size Matters for Specialization. Another really interesting episode we had called Reversing Speciation? Question mark, featured Jant Ottenbergs from Wageningen University, who, through the medium of hybridizing bean geese, raised important questions regarding our understanding of the process of speciation. So the thing I would highlight is this uh, idea of I'm a bit reluctant to say speciation uh, in reverse because then you imply that they were different species and are now merging. So I would say that they were in the process of becoming different species and that this process has now been reversed. Um, because if you look at uh, a lot of the literature on speciation, often people see it as the speciation continuum where you go from two populations that can hybridize all the way to complete reproductive isolation. And you get this feeling that this reproductive isolation is the goal of speciation, maybe even the goal of evolution of getting different species. But I think it's important to realize that this process can stop, for example, when you get a hybrid zone, but it can also reverse, as we show with uh, the bingies. So I think we need to step away a bit from this idea that speciation always leads to complete reproductive isolation, but that there's a whole continuum in between. Now, one of my favorite episodes this year was Resistance is Female, which, hands down, is the best title I've ever come up with. In this episode, Kerry Genro and Michael Haig discuss new developments in a textbook evolutionary example, the arms race between toxic mutes and garter snakes in North America. 
And what I really love in this episode is that Kerry shows that even in already well-characterized systems, early career researchers can still make outstanding contributions. The reason why the sex linkage of these genes is significant is that sex-linked genes are inherited differently than autosomal genes. So being sex-linked has a lot of implications for evolutionary dynamics. What that might mean is that the, there could be stronger selective pressure on the females versus the males because they're only expressing one copy. At first, I hesitated a little bit to get into this system because I thought it was so well-defined and well-known, but to find out this huge piece of information that had been missing before, the the fact that the major gene involved in tetrodotoxin resistance was sex-linked was exciting to me and, and showed me that there was still an opening um, in the system, like a way that I could contribute more. Of course, this year we haven't just featured interviews with authors. We've also gotten to know some of our editors a bit better. It's always great to hear about the research, careers, and passions of the people behind the journal. And in particular, I really enjoyed hearing about the career path of Dario Garapapalia, which has to be one of the most unique I've ever come across. I graduated back in 85 in forest engineering, but I also had, had an interest in, in, in science and research. And you know, during my undergrad, I worked with uh, isozymes and, and uh, protein electrophoresis, looking actually at cassava. But when I graduated, then I went to work for the industry. Right away, I got a job in the first plant biotechnology company in South America. And of course, in 1986, plant biotechnology was basically tissue culture. Okay. But then in 1988, we started doing RFLP work because the company I used to work for was owned by an American company that was connected to a few universities in the U.S. that started doing molecular markers in plants. So in 1990, I quit my job. I wanted to get a Ph.D. and I got a scholarship from the Brazilian government. And I went look for a place where I could actually keep working on markers in trees because I started working in forest trees in my job and I found a great place which was North Carolina State which is a like a mecca of forest genetics and applied forest genetics. Engineering, industry, research, Dario really has done it all and this year the podcast has also gone beyond academia in a few of our episodes. A real treat was getting to talk to Professor Dan Blumstein about his new popular science book The Nature of Fear. Well, it's a popular science book, and I use the lens of anti-predator behavior to understand how animals make decisions. I have spent a lot of time studying anti-predator behavior in lots of different species. You might say that I have an inordinate fondness for marmots. I've studied native <laughs> in species of marmots around the world, but I, I study lots of species, and I, I've done so for over 35 years. And I look at the various ways organisms avoid getting killed by predators and make decisions about this and the effects that predators have on their behavior, their morphology, and the ecological communities they live in. But I use this as a way of understanding us. I use this to create insights into why we make decisions the way we do and maybe to help us come to terms with our fear because fear is okay. Fear is a natural behavior. We are here because of the successes of our fearful ancestors. Now, Dan had a lot of really great stories to share, but one definitely sticks with me the most. I used to get paid to bicycle around the world. That's how I discovered the marmot population I studied in Pakistan for my dissertation research. But I was biking with an old friend, and we were trying to go around the Himalayan Karakoram, but the Chinese wouldn't let us in as independent travelers. Oh, well. But we were in India. And we were in Corbett National Park, which is one of the tiger reserves. This is years and years ago. And it's hot. It's pre-monsoon India. And 
there's just tall vegetation and there's elephants and there's, you know, other sorts of cool animals, including tigers, of course. And we're going around trying to see tigers and we're seeing footprints and we're seeing kills, but we're not seeing tigers. And one hot day we climbed up into this tower and we're sitting in the shade of this tower, looking down at this river and we hear a peacock screaming. It's like, wow, you know, that's interesting. What's going on with that? And then we see these these monkeys come to the side of the river, look back in fear and leap out of the trees into the river and swim across it. Huh, monkeys, why are they swimming across the river? That's pretty exciting. What's going on with that? And then we see this huge tiger come out. <laughs> and I mean, it's really hot, like 120 degrees, and, and sort of lay down in this river and cool off. And what I saw there was interspecific alarm communication, something that's fascinated me throughout my career. And finally, we come to my actual favorite episode of this year. And it just so happens to be the last one. In the previous episode, we talked to two high school students, Daisy and Caitlin, and their teacher, John Hale, about the most amazing school-based science project I've ever come across. We collected five different varieties of daffodils around our houses, and we used this as a kind of a point to sequence different varieties of daffodil to see different kind of plastome sequences of each species to see if they are related in any way. Um, so we started off using the min-ion sequencing, which we sequenced up to five individuals, um, which was really great because, as Daisy said before, being able to do it in your classroom was a really cool experience. And we've learned about bioinformatics in A-level biology, so being able to put it into practice was brilliant. We also took the DNA and, um, oh, I can't remember the word, what Mr. Hale knows, when you put the daffodils kind of onto a bit of card. For the um, preparation of your herbarium voucher. Yeah, that was it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we did that so we could um, present it and that was kind of evidence as the different species we'd collected. So one of the key things we were looking for was differences between the daffodils. So when we first collected them all, we made careful notes on what their trumpet looked like, what their petals looked like. We compared all of their colours to a paint chart so that we had a reference that was universal for all of our daffodils. And then hopefully now that we've sequenced some of it, we'll be able to compare the plastones and see where they're different and whether maybe that's the cause of the differences. But it was just really amazing when we saw all of the bases on the computer and just thought like we've made this. And I guess the real question is, has this project inspired them? Yeah, I would say it has because although I had kind of considered science as a career before then, I hadn't really thought about what that would entail. And I kind of thought scientific research was more about diseases or animals like looking at human genetics and this kind of opened my eyes to studying plants and that there's more to science than that and I would definitely like to go into scientific research now so I think it has helped me pick my career path. Uh, for me, yeah, I've also really enjoyed, I never really considered the potential impact of plants. I mean, you always think about how it's animals and human DNA. And it seems to be that humans are always the focus of like media attention and um, the impact that uh, research will have on humans. But I think through learning about the plastome and the effect it has on the relationships between daffodils has really opened my eyes to just how broad research can be and how um, much freedom you can have and how your research can have an impact on society and the understanding that people can take from the impact of plants and their potential uses in the future. The enthusiasm of these young scientists is a joy to hear, and it's the perfect way to see out the year on the Heredity Podcast. Obviously, we've only scraped the surface of these episodes, and to get into all the glorious science, you're going to have to go and give them a listen. You can find all of these episodes on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or any other podcast platform of your choice. And if you subscribe, you'll never miss an episode. 
Heredity is the official journal of the Genetic Society. You can find out more about the journal at nature.com forward slash hdy. Then you can also follow us on Twitter. That's at Heredity Journal. If you want to get in touch with me directly, drop me an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I really hope you've enjoyed this year's episodes. There'll be more great science coming to you in 2021, and hopefully some of you listening will be joining me on this side of the podcast. But until then, have a wonderful break over the holidays. I'm James Bregan. Thanks for listening.